things. The, the Bible says that he, was, he is like the perfect foundation stone that is the foundation of all that God is building in the world in terms of redemption and salvation. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that the rest of world history, as we see it unfold after Christmas, takes shape around the birth, death, and resurrection and ascension to the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we've seen happen. All of history has been the, the retelling of the story that was foretold through the prophets and then proclaimed and told by the angels on Christmas Day and then retold by the apostles and everybody that is faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and receives him as our world's king. The Christmas story was foretold, it was told, and then it has been retold ever since. In the New Testament readings, we just uh, have been hearing, we were hearing of the, the, the story being told. That is, the first Christmas was breaking forth and the angels were telling uh, the people present, the shepherds and Mary and whoever else, that it was unfolding. But we're going to look today at Isaiah chapter 9, which tells us of the, the foretelling of Christmas. So can you open up to chapter 9? And just while you're going there, I want to remind you that us celebrating Christmas in the world that we celebrate Christmas in is just a, let's not use it as an evidence or a proof, but just a witness to the fact that God exists, that his, this will not stand up with your atheist friends. It's not evidence that will uh, convince them, you know, Christmas happened, where's your God now? Haha, <laughs> we win. Uh, if, if God doesn't exist, then why the beautiful uh, uh, smoked ham? Beat that one, atheist, right? But we're not saying that. What we are saying is that Christmas just makes no sense in an atheistic world or, or, or a pagan world or a Hinduistic world, it makes no sense in any of those worlds. Because Christmas is, is the drama of the creator in getting involved into a world which was on a direction towards doom. Okay, so when we're talking Christmas, we're talking drama unfolding. The world was in a direction towards doom. The creator got involved with his creation to redirect that direction, and now the direction of the world is towards the glories of Jesus, where he is undoing the curse. He's making his blessings flow far as the curse has been found, which is everywhere, in case you haven't read Genesis 3. Christmas makes no sense in an atheistic worldview, in a non-God, non-Christian worldview, because there's no author. You can't have a story of the world without an author. What you have is meaningless, purposeless, directionless cells conglomerated into bags of meat, good-looking bags of meat, but still purposeless, directionless, useless, hopeless, purposeless bags of meat nonetheless. And, and so things like a story, like where's the world heading, where have we been, and how are we progressing on the story that the world is a part of makes no sense. There is no story. Life is useless and pointless and hopeless. Hope you enjoy it. Read a Christopher Hitchens novel. No. We have the real world. That's not the world that you exist in. We exist in the world that was created, and this creation has been interwoven with a narrative, a drama, a story. And as we said, it was, uh, if Jesus is the foundation stone of everything, it should be no surprise to us that that foundation got some preparing or had some, some preparation that needed to happen before it was laid. The ground needed to be ready. The world needed to be prepared, and so did that cornerstone. So we go all the way back to Isaiah 9. I trust that you're there by now. And what we see is Isaiah's prophecy painting a picture into the future where light would shine, bringing joy to the world. God's light would shine, 
bringing joy to the world through that virgin's child, Jesus. Listen to what Isaiah says. But there will be no gloom. This is verse 1 through to verse 7 we'll be reading. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former days, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, unto them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. You have, uh, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling, warrior in battle to molt, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel in the fire. In other words, war is no more. For, here's the why, all of that joy, here's the why. Because to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. May God bless you this Christmas morning as we think about uh, uh, all of the promises and prophecies that God made here through the mouth of his prophet Isaiah. What you need to see there, first of all, is that to the Jews, and this is 700 years before Jesus came, to the Jews, especially to the people in northern Israel, right, that's the land of Zebulun, Naphtali, or the towns of Galilee and Nazareth, right, all those words that you're familiar with from the Christmas story, those lands were in the north of Israel. Okay, maybe you've heard this before. They were, they were at the very tip top of Israel, meaning whenever an army was going to come and plunder the capital city, whenever an army wanted to come and, and take, some, uh, take some plunder from the, the capitals, they had to go through the very first gate of Israel, which was Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee, Nazareth area. So in other words, they were a frequently flattened town. They were constantly the first brunt of the Gentiles coming in with their swords. They were frequently having their young, young men killed, taken off as slaves. They were frequently being, being, having their agriculture burned and stolen. They were the worst town to live in when Israel was under attack from all sorts of different enemies. They were the first town that was flattened by the very people who had started to send off into exile the, the Jews that Isaiah is talking to. And so he says, in those former days, which is the present time that he's talking about, but his mind is so caught up in this future prophecy, it's as if his brain is in the future, and he's saying way back then, which was his present day, way back then, the, the, the northern tribe, that Nephtali, Zebulun, Galilee of the Gentiles, that was, a, that was a distraught city of deep darkness. Do you see, it says uh, those who 
who walk in darkness, as if their constant experience, generation after generation, is pain and death and famine and war. Or it says that those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, as if you can feel the anguish of your grandparents and you can feel the anguish of your parents and you can feel the anguish that you're going to pass on to your kids because you live in the land that is constantly flattened. So all of this promise of a future coming saviour Messiah to the Jews, the context was darkness. They're being promised a light because their context where they were currently half in exile, being destroyed by the nations, being uh, promised curses from God because of their sin, all of that, they were in darkness. But what we see is that the, the prophets really, they sort of look through the kaleidoscope of Israel, and many of the things that are true of them are in general also true of the world. So that while we'll say that for Israel, the promise of the Messiah was, was in the context of deep darkness, so also the whole world, well, it didn't receive all the prophecies as much, it didn't get the scrolls and the prophets, but, but they were still in deep darkness. The world, the whole world was pitch black when Jesus arrived. That's the context. And without those contexts of, of the world being in darkness, of history being at an all-time low, the promises of the Messiah will be lost. The glories of Christmas and the unfolding of the drama just won't make sense. John chapter 1 verse 5 says that, that the, the light shines into the darkness. And he's, he's talking about Jesus coming. You have to understand the context is darkness. But I, I hope that you're not too... Uh, too blind at this point to realize that the Bible also says your context for receiving the good news of Christmas is darkness. That even though we're not in a war-stricken, destroyed, impoverished, famished city, and you might be well off and you're wearing your Christmas best and you're about to go and uh, jump into uh, ham and bacon and all sorts of new covenant blessings, you're going to go and do that, that's great, yet don't miss that when God looks at a world or more, when God looks at a soul, a single human being, as lovely as you are, as great of an upbringing as you had, as, as much as you enjoy or don't enjoy Christmas, you, when God looks at you before you've received Christ, your context is utter darkness. You're under the sway of the evil one, the Bible says. You're, you're living in sin, constantly breaking God's laws, and, and the darkness is so thick, it's as if you can't even see your problem. You can't even see how lost you are, how damned you are, how condemned you are, how holy God is. That's the context for Christmas. So before we just talk about the overarching promises of Christmas for the world, let's talk about you and I and all of our loved ones. Without Jesus Christ, we are in deep, deep darkness, hopeless misery and condemnation. but it's our joy to be able to come to passages that tell us that into that darkness has come a great light. So let's not, let's not miss the context, otherwise we'll miss the point of Christmas and in fact the whole gospel. Don't try and weasel out of the fact that we are condemned, unrighteous and sinful before a holy God. We are darkness, he is light. Then the good news of Christmas comes. 
So darkness was the context for the Jews. It was really the context for the whole world. And it was definitely the context for us individually. However, into that darkness came the great light. We're going to see this in, in verse uh, 2 and, and 3. Well, actually, look, even look up at the uh, verse 1. He says in the, in the last half, he says, He has made glorious the way of the sea. So that the, the good news, the promise for those Jews was that into their darkness would come some kind of future glory. Verse 2, on those people, they have seen a great light. So that if destruction and sin is the darkness, they have seen restoration and forgiveness in the light. Or it goes on, on them a light has shined. The light is breaking into the darkness. Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 through 16. Matthew actually picks up that exact verse. And when he's watching Jesus walk around, healing people, proclaiming the kingdom is coming, and explicitly telling them, turn away from your sin and repent. God's judgment is coming. Matthew sees that. He sees the proclamation of repentance, the promise of the kingdom, the healing of people, and he says, that, that's what Isaiah was talking about. And he writes down in Matthew 3, Jesus did these things so as to fulfill the words of the prophet on those people walking in darkness, a great light has shone. The world likes the presents, the Christmas trees, the Christmas lights, the, the, the cake and all the rest. And we do too, praise God and hallelujah. But did you realize that in Matthew's mind, which is to say in God's mind, the light of Christmas is the preaching of repentance? You go to a church and they're all about the happy, clappy uh, uh, ecumenism and one spiritualism of the world. And this is all about how we get together and love one another. That's, that's kind of okay. But the light that shines, the only light that you need is the preaching of repentance and the coming unto Jesus Christ for salvation and forgiveness of sins. If your problem is that you're poor, well, the light is that God can make you rich. If the problem is that you're sick, the light is that God can heal you. If the problem is that you're not very happy or fulfilled, then the light that the church has got to try and sell you is that Jesus will give you a better life. But if your problem and if the darkness is that you are condemned and lost irrevocably in sin, then the light shining is that Jesus has come to proclaim repentance from your sins faith in his work, and salvation and forgiveness forever. So your context is darkness. The good news of Christmas for you is that unto you the light is shining. And, and this goes beyond each person to the world. This is good news to the world. Not because Christmas is a, or the gospel is a primarily social uh, message or a, an, a, a political message. It's, it's not those things, but the gospel has implications for everybody in the world. Later on in his book, Isaiah is going to say another prophecy. And the language is as if it's God the Father speaking to his son who he's about to send into the world. And he quotes God the Father in a prophetic way as saying this, it is too easy a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, 
Jesus, I could send you to go and ransom all of the Jews, but that's just too easy because the whole world knows that I'm the God of the Jews. I need them to know that I'm the God of them as well. That before me, there is no other God. After me, there is none. Beside me, it's an empty seat. I'm the only God and I'm not closing the doors just on Israel. He says, it's too light a thing that you should just bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. While the context for Israel was darkness and the context for us individually was darkness and the context for the world was darkness, Jesus is the light shining to the Jews to the whole world, and therefore to you. Don't enjoy Christmas and forget that you've been saved from your sins, friends. And if you've been invited along and you're not a Christian yet, don't enjoy all of Christmas without seeing in the happiness and the songs and the shining things and the food and the presents, the love of God was put on display in Jesus so that those who walked in darkness and deserved destruction have received a gift of grace and love. That's why Jesus came. Into the darkness, shone the great light. And we see the effect of this. The context was darkness, the coming was the light, and the effect was joy. Look at verse 3 and 4. That is some cold water. Wow. That'll wake you up. <clears throat> All right, verse 3 and 4. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Verse 3, he says, speaking to God now, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Midian is just a day when Gideon saved the whole of Israel from the oppressors, right? So that's just the historical context that he's using. He's saying, Isaiah is saying by the, from the mouth of God that when God brings joy onto the nation out of their darkness, he's going to make it so joyful, so glorious, it's going to be better than these three things. It's going to be better than when we have the harvest, okay? So you see, uh, uh, as with the joy at harvest, halfway through verse 3, when they divide the spoil, and then when you break the rod of his oppressor. These are familiar experiences for the Jews. When you've, you're waiting for the fruit or the harvest to be brought in, and you're starving, and your kids are crying because you're an agricultural uh, man who lives in an area that's been plundered by the enemies, you can't just walk down to Chris's IGA in Naphtali and grab the leftovers. You, 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 are, you are waiting, you're leaning, you're relying on the ground to bring your fruit. And Isaiah says, the joy is going to be better than when you wake up one morning, you come out and the whole field is just shining with wheat to bring in and make good sourdough bread. In fact, it's going to be even better Experience this now. Imagine this experience, the dividing of the spoil. The dividing of the spoil is what would happen when you go out. Okay, mums, you send out your teenage boys and your husband and even your elderly father because the army is that desperate. They go out. 
Everyone from about 60 to 15 go out into battle to try and fight an enemy with bigger swords, bigger armies, more horses and the rest. And you're, you're hoping and you're crying and you're praying at home and then over the mountains you see your sons and your nephews come back and they're carrying, a little graphic here, the heads of the enemy generals, that's for the guys, and the spoil of their cities. They're carrying extra gold, chain jewelry, animals. They're bringing back clothes from a foreign land because they beat the conquering enemy. They conquered the conquerors and took all their goods. And so then the next day what you do is the gentlemen come home, have a good nap, have a good meal, and the next day is plundering time. When you divide the spoil up to all of the houses, they, they divvy up the clothes, the jewelry, the gold, the animals, the, the food. And, and Isaiah is saying the day of Jesus coming is going to be better than that day. When you're unwrapping presents from a foreign land saying, look at this, it's going to be better than that day when you've got back your young sons from war. When you, get, when you receive great riches, it's going to be more joyful than that day. And you know what else the Jews are familiar with? If you know one story from Israel, it's them escaping Egypt, right? And constantly throughout their history, they're escaping people's oppression. Well, they were very familiar, especially in Isaiah's day, of what it was like to be slaves and what it was like to be ruled over by tyrants. And Isaiah is saying, the day that you look to the city square and you see the enemy generals, the enemy rulers, the enemy kings fleeing, so as it is to say he uses the imagery of his rod that beats your kids on the back to do more work, the, 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 the staff that he would shove you to keep on, keep on carrying and building things for him, those things are just snapped on the leg of your king. That day when you realize you're free, you're not a slave anymore, you get to enjoy life. That day is a shimmering candle in comparison to the light that is coming on the day when the Messiah comes to Israel. So Israel was being promised because the light was coming, there is going to be amazing joy. And in fact, this was, this was going to be joy that was also, again, promised to the whole world. It was joy that was going to be coming because in the death of Jesus, not just in the arrival and the healing ministry, but in the crucifixion and death of the Messiah Jesus, the Christ, he would open the door and he would shed his blood. He would sprinkle with holiness every nation on earth. Again, the same prophet Isaiah, later on in chapter 52, he says, speaking of Jesus, his appearance, this one who's coming, that is the light, that is so happy, everyone's so gloriously and joyful because he's here, his appearance will be so mangled beyond human semblance. He won't even look like a human being when the Romans are done doing to his body what they're going to do. And his form is beyond that of the children of mankind. He doesn't look human anymore. And so shall he sprinkle many nations. What an intermingling of curse and blessing. This coming Messiah would be, would be the cursed one. All of the sin of the ages would be poured down onto him. 
All of the accumulated anger of God against us for our sin would be poured out on him and he would look unrecognizable. Not just you don't know that it's Jesus. You didn't know that that thing hanging on the cross was a human. But in that, he's opening the doorway, the the floodgates of the blessing of God onto our world. And he would sprinkle with his blood to make us holy every single nation. But that is the joy that is promised to you. Because you were a sinner in darkness. Or you were a sinner in darkness. Because you, unto you, to you, is being shone the glory of the light of Jesus Christ. And what is being promised is that those who accept him will receive joy unspeakable. Like food on a poor family's table. Like liberty from tyrants who seek to exact from you as much tax and oppression and slavery as they can. Like the joy of receiving your sons back on the warships to the, to the shores of Australia. That kind of joy. So that the, the song that we sang makes a lot of sense in that joy. When you think of salvation from sin, that kind of joy is like what the hymn writer says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that we no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. This type of joy is joy unspeakable that outshines and is not because of all the other things we want. Here's what's really trippy about this, this, this promise of Isaiah, is if you read it in Isaiah's day, you'd be thinking he's saying that what we're getting when the Messiah comes is everything that we've missed out on at the moment. So when Jesus comes, we'll get our tyrants, who at that time will be Rome, the tyrants will be thrown away. We'll get our land back and all the Jews come back to Israel in full. We'll get our riches and our, our lives back and our livelihood. We'll be flourishing in wealth again. That, that's what you would assume. And yet when Jesus comes, if we know our New Testament, he dies, he rises, he gets resurrected, and in a generation or so, the Romans come in, take away their land, destroy their city, burn down their temple, kill many of their children, slaughter almost the whole nation, and separate and spread everybody out in poverty. Which would mean, right, that this promise and prophecy is null and void and broken. Or... The joy that is coming through Jesus is like those other joys, but infinitely better even in the midst of losing those things. And that's, that's the reality. That the Jews who received Jesus lost their houses. The Jews who received Jesus lost their families, lost their wealth, lost their temple, but gained Jesus and in him eternal life. That's the joy of Christmas. No matter what else you have lost, no matter what else following Jesus costs you, family, you can't go back to a home country, friends cut you off, you lose a certain job, whatever it costs you, it is worth it because he is the joy. He doesn't bring you some other gift, he is the gift. 
If Christmas joy is really nothing more than merry seasonal greetings and holiday cheer, if that's what Christmas is, then those of us who have lost somebody this year, or those of us who don't have a, a family member around the table that was there last Christmas, or those of us who have had rifts in the family or losses of the job, or, or Christmas just doesn't have as many presents at all this year because of the financial situation you're in, whatever it is, if Christmas joy is seasonal chippiness, then that overshadows and overwhelms, uh, uh, is overwhelmed by the losses of this year. You, you can't just well up happiness and try and be chipper if you're miserable. But if the joy of Christmas is that in real history, God has intervened through his son to bring blessings to those in darkness, to bring forgiveness to those who are sinful, to bring the light of God into our world, then the losses that you've experienced this year are not, are not going to overwhelm Christmas. They're not going to have to be shoved aside so that you can enjoy a fake chipperies with a dodgy little hat on from your popper. But in fact, your losses from this year will increase the joy of Christmas because the joy of Christmas is coming straight into the context of loss. Those pains that you have are hunger pains towards the coming glory when all suffering and loss is wiped away. That's the real joy of Christmas. You know that there's a difference in hunger pains when, uh, say, you're on a boys' camping trip. I want to ask you to put up your hands. I just know you've all done it. You're going on a boys' camping trip and you run out of food on day one and you're there for a week because we're idiots. We don't know how to pack food. And we assume there'd be animals there to hunt or kill or something. Or a mum would show up on day two and give us groceries. The hunger pains are different. When you're lost and abandoned in the bush with no food, those hunger pains kick in. You're going, oh, no, nothing to eat, no hope. Worse still, if you're lost. There's a difference between that kind of hunger pain and the hunger pain you feel on Christmas morning driving to Christmas lunch. When that rumble kicks in and that stitch starts to occur, you don't, you don't get hopeless. You don't say, oh, no. My life, woe is me, I'm, I'm hungry. You start sweating with enjoyment. You start going, I'm so hungry. I'm going to destroy the prawns. There will be no ham left. I cannot wait. In fact, I've been fasting for three days so that I can eat everything that my European family spreads out. Right? That, the difference in the hunger pains. If you have the joy of Christmas, which is really just faith in Jesus Christ and all that he is done, doing and has done, then the pain in this life is just hunger pains. They're real. We cry. We weep. We've lost. Mary will lose her son to death. She cries. It's real loss. And yet, the light is coming up in the morning. We're not here forever. This is not all we have is loss and sin and condemnation and misery. We have a son of righteousness that will one day rise and heal the entire world fully and give us a, a joyful, perfect experience. And if Christmas is just once a year trying to well up some happiness and some cheer and pop a bonbon and do all the other stuff and read the dodgy jokes, if that's all it is, it'll run out pretty quick. But God came to bring a mighty, mighty joy. And we'll just read what, what these words are that are spoken of Jesus. I love that Isaiah obviously says a human is being born. He's obviously a human because he says to Mary, like Gabriel the angel said, you're going to conceive and have a child. You will, a human, conceive, have a child, ergo, human. But, 
he will also be God. Because the next line is, a son is given to you. In, in Hebrew literature, it's, it's, you just don't say a son, you say a son of. He will be son of, well, the father, a son of righteousness, a son of iniquity. You say son of something, and he's just saying, no, no, son. The son like no son before. The son is going to be given to the world through Mary's womb. Yeah, he'll be, he'll be man because he's born of your womb, but he'll be God because he is a son given. This is throwing back to 2 Samuel when God promised a king, when God said, I will be of that future king. It's Jesus, that king that's coming. He will be like a son to me, God said. Or in Psalm 2, speaking to that son, God said, you are my son, this king ruling the world. So it's going to be Mary's son, but it will also be God's son. So Gabriel says, you will conceive and call his name Jesus, all very human. And he will be great and will be called son of the most high. So he'll be your son, but it's shared custody here because he's also son of God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Right? What we said before, I will be a son to, he, he will be a son to me, this king. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And that's quoting Psalm 2. God's just awesome at writing the Bible. It all intersects gloriously. And so he's called Wonderful Counselor. That is that he's majestic and miraculous in his wonder. That's what Jesus did, miracles. And he's a counselor of omnipotent wisdom. Never be outsmarted. Always bring the wisdom of God to bear. He will be mighty God. There you go, right there. The same word God uses of himself in Isaiah 10, in Isaiah 9, is said of Jesus. He'll be mighty God, everlasting Father, which is distinct from God the Father, but he is the Father of eternity, meaning he's the Father of eternal life. What comes into the world when he comes is offspring, spiritual children who have eternal life. He's the Father of eternal children, eternal life, and eternal family. And therefore, he is the prince of peace. You know, a lot of royalty, a lot of armies in the history of the world and today can establish some semblance of peace. They can tell you, look, there's no wars, peace in our time, where's the enemy? Very few can hold it for very long. Even Rome, they had the peace of Rome, it was amazing, and yet that peace was shattered. But Jesus is the king who is the Prince of Peace. He's going to establish, first of all, peace between God and man. Where God holds us condemned, Jesus will bring peace in that relationship because he died for our sin, giving us eternal life. But then also peace to your conscience so that you know you are right with God. An internal peace. And then eventually, when that peace between God and man and that peace between man and himself starts taking root in the world, we will then see more and more increasingly the peace between man and man. Even we believe that there'll be a future manifestation of Jesus' kingdom where there is utter peace between all men. No more war, but a perfect, finalized kingdom of God. That is as unthinkable and impossible as the virgin birth. But Jesus can do it.
because he is the mighty God bringing the promises of God. And it says in our last verse this morning, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's not relying on the zealousness of Mary or on the keenness and faithfulness of Joseph or Peter or Matthew. He's relying, we're relying on the zeal of God's own passion to see his name glorified. So where are you this morning? Has Christmas become for you the greatest reminder of the greatest news of your greatest problem in the world? That to you, God has in the form of a zygote and then a few cells and then a fetus and then a baby and then a child and then a young man and then a man and then a crucified Savior. Through that story has God shown to you his mercy and his grace that where you deserve death for your sin, you've received life through the death of Jesus? Or is Christmas just a holiday? It's just another nice thing we do. And if that is the case, then you are still in your sins. You are still condemned. And yet every day, the mercies are new. The offer is put out. The banquet table is set. Come and feast on the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is salvation. He alone brings lasting peace to this world. He alone is our creator, Lord, and savior. Repent and believe the gospel. It is good news, amen? amen. Can you stand up? We're gonna pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you so much for Christmas. We thank you, uh, not because it's any more special than... than uh, what we celebrate every Sunday. I mean, we're not thanking you for this day. We're thanking for the, the reality that is behind Christmas, the, the glory of the glory of God coming into mankind, the glory of heaven breaking into earth, the, the mighty holy God coming into sinful society so that you could bring about peace and justification and reconciliation between enemies. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for not thinking deeply enough about our sin, for not thinking severely enough about our, our problem of sin. Thank you, Lord, for, for nonetheless still loving us first and, and offering salvation. And Lord, we thank you for the eternal life that is on offer. I just pray that everybody would have a joyful day, no matter where they're at, that they would have a glorious day, a joyful day with family, remembering the free grace you give, even, even to those who hate you and blaspheme you, you give them good gifts. But Lord, may that, may that appreciation, may that recognition well up to faith. May they have repentance in their heart for their sin, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and eternal life. Father God, we, we glorify Jesus today for he is the only heaven-born Prince of Peace. He is the only Son of Righteousness. He is the only one worthy of our praise. And so in Christ alone, we thank you, Lord God. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.